It has been said that Jesus was the first missionary. For he was sent by God the Father to seek and to save the world the Father loved. Now just as God sent his Son into the world, the Son sent his disciples into the world. In fact, we don't have time to look at it, but read John 17. And Jesus says to the disciples, just as the Father has sent me, so send I you. We as disciples of Jesus have been sent into the world with the same mission that Jesus had. God is a a missionary-minded God. And that's why we are to be a missionary-minded people. But when we think about missionaries, we think about those who go to the far-off places, like the the Torresans who come here at times, who go to Uruguay, or people who go off to India or Africa. And, And while truly they are missionaries... They are not the only kind of missionaries that there are. There is a need for missionaries to be sent into places like Guyman and Goodwell, Hooker and Texoma. Just as there is a need for Christ-centered missionaries to take the gospel to the unreached peoples that have never heard of Jesus Christ. There is a need for Christ-centered missionaries to take the gospel to people who have become bored with Jesus Christ. Now what would it look like? For you and I, for us, to be Christ-centered missionaries in our community. That's what we're going to look at today. Open your Bible to Ephesians 3, verse 1. Uh, When you find that, I must get stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Paul writes, For this cause... I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus for you Gentiles. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mysteries, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Therefore, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of of the mystery." which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. Title of the message this morning is A Christ-Centered Missionary. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come today with a desire to know you better, to be better able to make you known in our community and in our world. Father, today we want to be a people who take the gospel to every person in our community, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, we know that is your desire. We know That it is your will that all would be saved and that salvation comes through faith after we hear the gospel of Christ. 
So Father, today as we begin to look at, at Paul's life as a missionary and, and the things that he did, let us see how this would apply to us. Let us see ways that we could apply to be missionaries, Lord, in our community and on, in our jobs and the places that we go. Help us not to think that it's others that are meant to take the gospel to the world, but God, that we are. And give us opportunities to talk to people about Jesus, to be missionaries and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Guide us today that we would lay aside the cares of life and we would surrender this next bit of time to you. You have your way. You do your will. You speak your word. Let your spirit come. Let him fill me and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way, Father. We surrender our lives to you. Take us and use us for your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul starts by saying, for this cause. And it points back to the truth that was taught in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. The truth of the oneness of the church. And it moves Paul to begin to pray. He is going to start praying for them. But then as he starts praying, he kind of gets distracted. He begins to think about the mystery of Christ, that, that mystery of the kingdom of God, of Gentiles being brought into the kingdom. And he starts to explain this to them. Explain something about his suffering, who he was, why he's in this place of ministry that he's in now. And as he, he does this, he, he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ and so much more. But as we study this, what we can see is how Paul's life, it, it's kind of a model for us. Right? Paul was most definitely a missionary who was sent into the world to make disciples of all nations. And, and like Paul, we are sent into the world to make disciples of all nations, to make Christ known. Now, Paul's is different because he was an apostle. That doesn't mean there's nothing we can't learn from him. That doesn't mean that we do not have a role in proclaiming Christ to the nations, particularly in our own local communities. This passage, it is a, a missionary text calling us to live as missionaries. It's not calling us necessarily to go to Uruguay, to go to Africa. But it is calling us to go to Guyana. It is calling us to go to Goodwell, to Hooker, to Texhoma, and to take the message of Jesus with us as we go. The reality is, every disciple of Jesus is meant to be a missionary for Jesus. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be a missionary for Jesus. Now this isn't a new idea. In the 1800s, there was a pastor named Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's a bold statement. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. Now, while we won't all serve as missionaries in exactly the same ways, even in our community, we are all meant to live as missionaries in our community. In this passage, it gives us at least four ways that we are to live as Christ-centered missionaries in our community. Number one is that we are to count the cost of following Jesus. Paul opens this passage by saying, I, Paul, 
the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, I love his wording. He doesn't say he is a prisoner of the Romans, although he is. He doesn't say that he's a prisoner of the Jews, although it's their fault he's a prisoner. He says, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul understood that his imprisonment was because of his faithfulness to Jesus and his unswervingness to proclaim the good news and the message of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 13. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. He is going through tribulations with this imprisonment. Now, we're not sure what the specific tribulations may be. But whatever they were, they did not cause him to second guess his decision to follow Jesus. They didn't cause him to to let up on his proclamation of Jesus. He's not even remotely considering stopping for the sake of his freedom and an easy life. But not only is he not letting up, he doesn't want them to let up. That's why he says, I want you to faint not. I don't want you to see my imprisonment. I don't want you to see my hardships, my tribulations. And I don't want you to say, oh, I'm going to quit serving Jesus because of what it's costing Paul. I don't want that to happen to me. No, he says, faint not at my tribulation. Stay faithful. Continue to share the message of Jesus. Paul's life wasn't a, Paul's priority in life was not a life of safety. It wasn't a life of ease. And it wasn't a life of comfort. Paul's priority in life wasn't retiring and spending his golden years collecting seashells. Paul's priority was following Jesus wherever that led and whatever that meant. Paul knew that a life devoted to Jesus was not going to be a life of ease and comfort and safety. If you're familiar with Paul's call to the ministry when Jesus saved him, Jesus sent a man to him. To open his eyes after he had gone blind. And he told him to tell him how many things he must what? Suffer for my name's sake and for the kingdom of God. Paul knew what it meant for him to follow Jesus. He had long ago counted the cost of following Jesus. And he had said in 2 Timothy 2, 9 and 10 that he was willing to endure all things. All things. So that others could find salvation through Jesus Christ. That is a a bold proclamation. I am willing to endure all things for the sake of the elect that they might find salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul the prisoner wrote that. Paul the beaten wrote that. Paul the often starving wrote that. Paul the shipwrecked wrote that. What about us? Are we willing To be prisoners for Christ? Are we willing to endure tribulation for the sake of Jesus? Are we willing to be shunned for sharing the message of Jesus? Are we willing to follow Paul's example and endure all things so that others can be saved? Now that can sound kind of radical. But when you read the teachings of Jesus... What you find is this idea is just discipleship 101. When Jesus taught his disciples and he sent letters to people, he said things like, we must love him 
and be more devoted to Him than we are to spouses and children. Jesus said that we must love Him and be more devoted to Him than we are to our own lives. Jesus said that we must deny ourselves. He said that we must take up our cross daily in order to follow Him. He said that we have to be willing to forsake all to follow Him. He said that if we save our lives for ourselves, we lose our souls in the process. He said if we give up our lives for His sake and for the Gospels, that we save our souls in the process. He even told one church that was suffering badly, it's going to get worse. But be thou faithful unto death. He told them, you're suffering persecution and hardship and that is going to get worse. You let them kill you before you deny my name and start preaching my gospel. And all of this is why Jesus said in Luke 14 that we must count the cost following him. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Now in America, we're not likely to endure prison or death for the sake of Jesus. But it doesn't mean we don't count the cost. We need to count the cost and be ready for a loss of comfort. For truly, if I'll only follow Jesus while it's comfortable, I'll never follow Jesus. We must be willing to count the cost of inconvenience. Because truly, if I'm only willing to follow Jesus when it's convenient, I'll never follow Jesus. We must count the cost of uncomfortable conversations. For if I'm only willing to have comfortable conversations, I'll never share the message of Jesus. I must count the cost of generous giving. For truly, if I only give what is easy and not challenging to me, I've truly not understood the gospel and what Jesus gave up to me. We must count the cost of self-denial. Because if I cannot deny myself anything that I want to do or anything that I want to, to go, I cannot follow Jesus. For following Him often takes me places I do not want to go and requires me to do things I do not want to do. I must be willing to count the cost of these things and so much more. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be a missionary for Jesus. And this requires us to count the cost of following Jesus. We count the cost of following Jesus, but we also we must be faithful to the message of Jesus. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 2. He says, If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you. He, he talks about his responsibility to take the message of Jesus to the nations. And he refers to this message as a this responsibility as a dispensation. It has been given to him by God for them. Right? So the point is, God revealed this to him so that he could take it to them. Right? This message was made known to Paul by revelation from God. This revelation had to be given by God because nobody in times past, Paul will say in this text, no, they didn't understand. They didn't understand that the Gentiles were going to be brought in as equal heirs of Christ into the kingdom of God. They didn't know what God's plans were. And so Paul was given this message. And he was given this responsibility for it. And he must have been, he said he must be faithful to it. 
faithfulness is required by the responsibility that's been given to us through the gospel. Now we haven't been, it hasn't been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit like it was to Paul, but it has been revealed to us by the writings of the apostles and the prophets. They wrote those things down, they sent them to others, and there we have them. And so we have God's word, we have God's truth, we have God's message. And it's been given to us, but not just for us. It's not just been given for us to increase our learning. It's not just been given to us to change, renew our minds and transform our lives. It has been given to us for them. That we might go to them and take them the message of Jesus. That whether they be Jew or Gentile, no matter what they are or where they've been, that they too, through faith in Jesus, they can be brought into the kingdom and made children of Almighty God. And like Paul, our job is to be faithful to the message of Jesus. For we have been given this as a stewardship for the purpose of taking it to the nations. Look at what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. Let a man so account of us as ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Every believer is a minister of Christ. Minister simply means we serve Christ by serving others. Every believer is a minister. As such, we are stewards of the mystery of God. Now, a steward is someone who has been given something that belongs to somebody else, and their, their job is to handle it in the right way. It's like a manager. The manager of a store doesn't own the store. They handle the affairs of the store for another person. And that's what we are. The message is not ours. It has been given to us and our job is to handle it in a way that God expects of us. For truly, it is required of stewards they be found faithful. God's absolute expectation of us is that we would be faithful with the message of of Jesus. Now there are two ideas we should understand about the idea of faithfulness to the message of Jesus. First, is faithfulness is integrity, faithfulness to the integrity of the message. That the message that all people can be part of the kingdom of God through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it is not ours to alter. We cannot change any aspect of that message and still be considered to be faithful to God. It is not ours. We don't own it. We are stewards. We must be faithful. So that means we have to answer yes to certain things. Are, are all people sinners? Yes. Are all people condemned apart from Christ? Yes. Must people turn from their sin and turn to Christ? Yes. If God calls something a sin, is it really and always a sin? Yes. Must people believe in Jesus to be saved? Yes. Did, is Jesus the only path for salvation? Yes. Must people turn from their sin to follow Jesus? Yes. Did Jesus die for my sins and your sins? Yes. Did Jesus literally bodily rise from the dead? Yes. Are all people 
regardless of social or economic class, ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, gender, religion, invited to come to Jesus and be saved. Yes, we must be faithful to that. We do not own the message. We are stewards of the message. Therefore, we do not have the right to alter it. Not in one jot, nor one tittle. And listen, let me say something about this. When we alter the message, we do a damnable thing. It is not a a slight thing to alter the message of the gospel. Our, Our world, our world promotes immorality. You might almost say that that they take pride in it. And the the call for the church is to embrace it, to affirm it, to say, yes, it's okay. You be you. Live your truth. And if we alter the message and say, you be you, live your truth. Yes, it's fine. We do a damnable thing. We condemn that person to hell apart from Jesus Christ. And we make ourselves a false teacher. Along the lines of the people in Jeremiah's day who said, peace, peace. And there was no peace. Dear friend, if you are going to affirm someone in their sin, do not call yourself a disciple of Jesus. Call yourself a prophet of Baal. Call yourself a servant of Satan. But do not call yourself a disciple of Jesus and tell people that are condemned that they're saved. We must be faithful with the integrity of the message. We do not have the right to alter it. Second, faithfulness requires that we share the message. Scripture compares us to watchmen on the wall looking for invaders. So imagine you're on guard duty for your town. And you see a you look out at the ocean, you see a ship coming and it's got the pirate flag and you know they're coming to invade and pillage your town. And you have the trumpet to blow, to warn and wake and prepare everyone for what's coming. And rather than do that, you say, well, I don't want to wake people up. A sudden trumpet sound in the night might be scary. Well, it might hurt their feelings. Well, maybe maybe the pirates will just come and be our friend and, and let us all be okay. Or maybe we're just cowards. And we get down off the wall and we flee and leave the city to its fate. Would we, in any way, be considered faithful watchmen on the wall? Absolutely not. To be faithful watchmen, when we see the ship coming, we must sound the trumpet loud and true and continuously. Now, how the people respond? Do they wake up and get prepared? Do they lay in their beds and hope for the best? Not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to shout the message, to tell them the invaders are coming, and then they must determine what to do from there. We know that there is a judgment to come. There is a sure and a certain judgment to come. And the only way to avoid it is by faith in Jesus Christ. And if we do not shout that message boldly and clearly, 
we are not faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. There is no way for us to be considered faithful with closed mouths about the need for people to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. The only way we are faithful stewards of the mysteries of God is if we declare the truth about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and that all must repent and believe and be saved. We can't save them. It's not our job. We warn. We share. Their response is on them. And God will hold us accountable for whether or not we're faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself, yet I'm not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. That's a good verse. There is a day where we'll be judged, a day of reckoning that's coming. Have we been faithful with the message? Have we been faithful stewards of the mysteries of God? Now notice what he says. It's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. In other words, what he's saying is, whether or not you say I've been faithful does not matter. Right? So, there are going to be people that even if we keep our mouths closed, they will say... You are being faithful. You are just living a good life and that's all that matters. And as long as, look how kind you are. Yes, you're faithful. Make no mistake, their judgment does not matter. At the same time, there are going to be people, when you declare the gospel, they're going to say you are hateful. You are ignorant. God does not love you for doing that. God would hate you for acting that way. That is not a God of love or a message of love. At the same time, their judgment does not matter. I <laughs> like, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. He's saying, as far as I know, I've been faithful, <laughs> but even my judgment doesn't matter about whether or not I've been faithful. Whose judgment matters? God's. Because here's the deal God is the judge. So if Scott tells me I'm faithful and I'm not sharing it, guess who's not going to be there when I stand before God? Scott. Scott's not going to be there and go, but God, did you see how nice he was? Did you see how he loved his family? God, he was faithful, God. Scott won't be there. It'll just be me, me and God. At the same time, if Aaron tells me that I'm not faithful, that I'm hateful and I'm unloving and I'm unkind, He won't be there. The only person that will be there with God will be me. It will be you. Do not let what another says mess with your day of reckoning. For they will not be there to tell you whether or not to tell God how good you were or how hateful you were. For their judgment does not matter. Another human's judgment will not stand only God's will. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be a missionary for Jesus. But this requires us to be faithful with the message of Jesus. We must be faithful with the message. Count the cost of following Jesus. Be faithful to the message of Jesus. And then proclaim the riches of Jesus. Paul says in verse 7, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of grace given unto me. By the effectual working of His power. 
so much to love about that verse. One, Paul describes himself as a minister, a minister of the gospel. But it wasn't something Paul took upon himself. It wasn't something Paul just determined to do. It was something that that was chosen for him and was given to him by God. Let me ask you something. Do you you see yourself as a minister of the gospel? You should. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a steward of the mysteries of God, you are a minister of the gospel of Christ. And he also goes on and he talks about according that he was made a minister. I I love that part because it does reveal that there's a process involved. We often think that becoming a a faithful steward, a minister of the gospel is just like instantaneous. That suddenly I am effective and eloquent and able to do it all really well. But that's not the way that it happens. It is something that God makes us into. It's something that God helps us to grow into the minister that we are meant to be. The growth may be gradual, but it is consistent for the disciple of Jesus. You may say, well, I'm not the minister of the gospel I ought to be. Then that's fine. We are, none of us are the minister of the gospels we're supposed to be. That we ought to be. There is always more. There is always better. There is always stuff that God is doing making us to who we ought to be. Jesus is always at work in our lives, making us to who and what we ought to be. He also explains that the ministry is not a hardship for him. Look at what he says. According to the the gift of grace given unto me. The gift of grace. For Paul, ministry wasn't a, a hardship to endure, but a blessing that had been given to him by God. And it was a... A gift of grace. I mean, is that the way we think of the ministry of the gospel in our community? Or do we think of it as a a hardship to endure? An imposition. Something that we feel guilty about. Something that we're afraid of. Friends, our, our view has to change. Paul saw it here and in 2 Corinthians 4 that I read at the start of service. It's a gift of grace, a gift of mercy. That's how we're supposed to see it as well. And then, by the effectual working of his power, Paul's ability to be a missionary, to share the gospel faithfully, effectively, it wasn't because of Paul. It was because of the power, the effectual power that was at work in him. That's what made the difference. You say, well, I'm not very good. Well, I'm not, I don't know enough and I don't have the right words and I get nervous. Congratulations. You're like everybody else in the world. And it's never by our eloquence. It's never by our abilities. It is always by the effectual working of God. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, we are given this treasure, the gospel, in earthen vessels, us. So that the excellency and the power might be of God and not of us. See, if it was by your strength and your skill and your eloquence and your power, who would get the credit? You would. Oh, Stacy's awesome. Look how great he is. But instead it's, oh, God is awesome. Look at how great God is. 
He goes on and he described himself in verse 8 as less than the least of all the saints. Paul never really fully forgot where he came from, where he was when Jesus saved him. When Jesus saved Paul, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man by his own words. The remembrance of of who he was and where he came from is a part of what amazed Paul that God would give him this gift and use him in this way. It's also part of what made Paul able to minister to anyone anywhere. Paul knew the sinner he was. Paul knew that without Jesus he would still be that proud, blaspheming, insolent man. And because he knew what he was without Jesus, he was able to look at those without Jesus, not with judgment, not with condemnation, but say, there, but by the grace of God, go on. And he could minister unto them. Some of us, we need this remembrance as well. We need to be reminded who we were before we met Christ. We need a good visual of what we would be apart from Christ. And let that remembrance, let that visual propel us into gospel ministry to tell others about the glory of the Christ that has saved us. Paul was commissioned to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now the word, the unsearchable, in in Greek does not appear anywhere outside of biblical Greek. One commentator said that when Paul thought about the glory of Christ, he made up a word. The idea is the grace and the riches of Christ are so great they cannot fully be comprehended. There is no known word that fully encompasses all that there is in the grace of God. There is no upper limit to God's grace. It is an inexhaustible treasure of riches. And he was to preach this to all men. What is the fellowship of the ministry which the beginning of the world had been hid, which God created, hidden in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Paul was to take this message and preach it to all people so they would see the, the greatness of Jesus, so they would come to Jesus and they would be saved. Notice that he says that that all men may see what is the fellowship of the mystery. The word see pictures shedding light in darkness. That scripture often pictures that unbelievers, their minds are are in darkness. They're, They're blinded to the truth. And as the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ are preached, God shines a light in there and lets them see their sin. And see the grace of God, the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Reveals their need for Jesus. Shows them clearly how wicked and awful their sin is. How great and how good Jesus is. We too must preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Not politics. Not morals. Not our ideas. We preach Christ. Crucified for sin, risen, victorious over the grave. With a grace so great, there is no upper limit. 
The grace can save the most vile sinner. And it's even great enough to save the most moral man. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. And as we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, God shines the light into their darkened mind and they can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They're then given an opportunity to turn to Jesus for salvation or harden their hearts to the call of God and turn away. How can we be sure that this is what will happen as we share Jesus? Well, the effectual working of His power guarantees it. God's Word is powerful. God's Gospel is great. It always, always strikes home in some ways. Just because a person resists and rejects it, that doesn't mean the Gospel didn't strike home. As people respond to it every single time they hear it, They respond in faith and are saved. They respond in faith and grow closer to Jesus. Or they reject it and harden their hearts and move themselves further and further away from Christ. But everyone always responds. The effectual working of God's power guarantees it. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be a missionary for Jesus. And this requires us to proclaim the riches of Jesus. And then finally... Value the church of Jesus. Count the cost of following Jesus. Be faithful to the message of Jesus. Proclaim the riches of Jesus. Value the church of Jesus. Look at what he says. Verse 10 and 11. These these are going to blow your mind. He preaches them, and he preaches this to the intent, right? That now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known... By the church, the manifold wisdom of God. So the church, he preaches the gospel. And he proclaims this message. So that the manifold wisdom of God will be known by the church or known through the church. But notice who this manifold wisdom of God testifies to. To the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now... Look quickly at Ephesians 6 in verse 12. And think of the wording. To the intent that men to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The point is that it is the spirit realm that, that sees the manifold wisdom of God in the church as we proclaim the gospel. Now, in, in Ephesians 3, Paul doesn't specifically mention evil spiritual powers or the spirits of or the workers of darkness. But I don't think that means they're excluded. I think what it means is they are not exclusively meant. This passage seems to refer to both evil spiritual powers and good spiritual powers or angels and demons. The angels 
Look at what God is doing in and through and for the church. And they are in awe of the greatness and the power and the glory of God. And the demons look at what God is doing in and through and for the church. And they tremble at the greatness and the glory and the power of God. The angels see the victory that God is bringing and rejoice. The demons see the victory that God is bringing and they are terrified because they know that it means their doom and their destruction. Clearly, there is more that goes on in a church and with the church than what is observable with our physical eyes. The existence and the expansion of the church of Jesus Christ is a sign to the angels of the wisdom and the greatness of God. The existence and the expansion of the church of Jesus Christ is a sign to the demons that their authority has been broken, their ultimate defeat is assured, and hell will be their final home. The church testifies to the watching spiritual world that God's purposes are being fulfilled. And that should change our view of the church. The church... It's extremely significant in God's economy. Think about Jesus said that the gates of hell would not stand against what? The church. Now, keep in mind. The church, right? Not not me. The gates of hell, he doesn't say they'll stand against me. They won't stand against me. He doesn't say the gates of hell won't stand against me and my family. The gates of hell won't stand against the church. Me, on my own, I I don't make known the manifold wisdom of God and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. My family, me and my family alone don't. It's the church. there's There's always an element of what God intends to do through our lives that is missing when we are not active and involved in the church. Church is extremely significant and important in the Bible, not only for life, but also for eternity. Listen to how one of my favorite authors explains this. The good news of the kingdom of God must be preached, if you please, by the church in all the world for a witness to all nations. This is God's program. This means that for the ultimate meaning of modern civilization and destiny of human history, you and I are most important, are more important than the United Nations. What the church does with the gospel has greater significance ultimately than the decisions of of the Kremlin. From the perspective of eternity, the mission of the church is more important than the march of armies or the actions of the world's capitals because it is a history, because in it, Because in this mission, in the accomplishment of this mission, the divine purpose for human history is accomplished. No less than this is our mission. Let us be done with this inferiority complex. Let us lay forever aside this attitude of self-pity and lamentation over our insignificance. Let us recognize what we are as God sees us and let us be about our divinely appointed program. This good news about the kingdom must be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. And then the end shall come. 
I am glad, indeed proud, to be a part of the church of Christ. Because to us has been committed the most meaningful and worthwhile task of any human institution. This gives my life an eternal significance. For I am sharing in God's plan for the ages. The meaning and destiny of history rests in my hands. May God give to each one of us this view of the church. May God give each of us a picture of how important the church is to the plans and the purposes of God on this earth. And be done with Laodicean commitment to the church. Be done with having a Sardis idea of a reputation for being alive, but actuality are dead. Let us be done. The church is optional. And see, the church is necessary. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be a missionary for Jesus. But this absolutely requires us to value the church of Jesus. Look, look at verse 12 and we'll close. In whom, speaking of Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. This is kind of the hinge verse. Everything we just talked about hinges on this. We cannot be disciples of Jesus who are missionaries of Jesus without first coming to God through Jesus. I, I listened to a sermon on Friday and the preacher was preaching at a missions conference and he said that normally at a missions conference what you do is you share a lot of exciting stories about missionary adventures. But he didn't do that. He said he didn't do it because he feared that people would seek missions for the sake of adventure. And what he was calling them to do was to seek Jesus for the sake of missions. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here in verse 12. He's not telling us to seek mission for the sake of mission. He's telling us to seek Jesus. Seek Jesus first of all. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness first. And the reality is, as we seek Jesus, we seek what Jesus seeks. Jesus is to seek and to save those who are lost. I cannot seek Jesus and not end up on the mission of Jesus. Jesus was a missionary. And when we seek Him, we end up on the same mission He was on. Sometimes that mission, it leads us to faraway places. But more often than not, it leads us right here at home. It leads us to be missionaries in Guyana, missionaries in Goodwill, missionaries in Hooker, Missionaries in Texoma. Missionaries at the job. Missionaries on the gym. Missionaries at the restaurant. Missionaries in our neighborhood. I had a quote I was going to close with, but it's gone. So I'll try to paraphrase it as best I can. The quote said, Scripture teaches the end of all history is the glory of Christ. Among the nations. Scripture teaches. That our job. Is to be a part of that here. And now. In this life. In what way. Are you a part of that. In what way are you making the name of Jesus known. In Guyana. 
and Hooker and Texoma and Goodwill. It's your job. The places where you hang out. The restaurants where you go. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. In this message there are two potential responses. There is the need to first join Jesus by faith. Truly it is likely there are some in here that have never come to Christ by faith and been saved. And everything starts there. Everything always starts repenting of your sins and believing on Jesus for your salvation. If you have never made that decision yourself, then today that is what you must do. You must personally call on Jesus to save you. No one can do that for you. No one can pray for your salvation but you. No one can believe in Jesus for your salvation but you. You must make that decision. The other response is for those of us that would say we are disciples of Jesus. And it is for us to be missionaries for Jesus. All throughout Scripture we hear cries going out for mission work. In Isaiah 6, God cries out, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? John chapter 12, Gentiles come to Jesus' disciples and they cry out, Sir, we would see Jesus. In Luke, tells us that in hell the condemned cry out send someone to my family to testify to them so that they come not to this awful place. Scripture tells us there are people crying out all around us. Scripture says God is crying out. The people in hell are crying out. Are we going to be Isaiah and say, here am I. Send me. Are we going to bury our talent? Are we going to hide from the wall? Oh, dear God, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to hear the cry. And help us to respond in faith. Father, here I am. Send me. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. Help me as the pastor to lead by example in this, Father. Make us missionaries in this community. Let it be said that we are a gospel people. Not just in the fact that we go to church on Sunday. And the way that we live. And the way that we proclaim the goodness. The saving power. The unsearchable riches of Christ. With our mouths. Be glorified. And use us we pray. In Jesus name. Amen.